As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic, helping you to understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. I'm Ruth Jackson, and now that we're halfway through December, I think I'm officially allowed to wish you a very happy Christmas. And Christmas is the theme of today's podcast. But before we hear from our guests, just a quick reminder to head over to our website, premierunbelievable.com, to find more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can get yourself a free ebook. I also want to remind you about our brand new online apologetics course, Science, Faith, and the Evidence for God with John Lennox. It includes nearly four hours of video material with John Lennox, Emeritus Professor of Mathematics and Philosophy of Science at Oxford University. The course is led by Justin Briley of Premier Unbelievable and it includes questions and assignments to help ground your learning. To celebrate the launch of this course, we're extending a 30% discount until the new year. The offer ends on Wednesday the 4th of January, so enrol now at premierunbelievable.com slash Lennox and learn how to make sense of science, faith, and the evidence for God. But now for today's show. As we approach Christmas, there are so many questions we could ask about the birth narratives. Why do only two of the four gospels mention Jesus's birth? Can we really believe in a virgin birth? Are the biblical sources reliable? And many, many more. Today's guest, Charles Foster, helps to answer some of these in his book, The Christmas Mystery. Charles is a writer and a fellow of Exeter College, Oxford University. This is part one of our discussion. Well, Charles Foster, we're going to be talking about this wonderful book, The Christmas Mystery. But before we sort of dive into the Christmas story, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Who are you? What do you do? I'm Charles Foster. Uh, The most important thing about me is that I am a husband and father of six uh, wonderful and anarchic children. (laughs) Uh, I am a fellow of Exeter College at the University of Oxford. Um, I'm also a practicing barrister. And I spend most of my time these days, apart from trying to control the anarchic children, um, writing books. And I write books about all sorts of things, uh, including theology, philosophy, natural history, and my academic province, which is the law. Uh, Within the law, I'm particularly interested in medical law. So the seams within medical law that I've been mining recently have been things to do with identity and personhood and human dignity that's uh that's quite a that's quite a range of things you're also a qualified vet aren't you i am uh, and i'm still on the register and still sometimes i go along and do a bit of rather amateurish veterinary work at 
uh, local community farms or try and trot a pony up and guess which leg it's lame on. But I'm very out of touch with the veterinary world now. Okay, so I mean, with kind of all of that under your belt, what was your purpose in doing the research for this book about Christmas? You know, what made you want to look into the Christmas story? The Christmas story is the grand miracle, as C.S. Lewis put it. So this is this is God welling up into our world in a way which had not previously happened. It's something which transforms the whole way in which we relate to to matter, to material things. And if this Christmas story isn't true, then the rest of the, Christ, rest of the Christian story uh, just evaporates. Uh, you can't have Easter without Christmas. Um, and I, I wanted to know how I should relate in the right and most vibrant way to the material world, which I love. Um, I'm a deeply unspiritual person. I, I like <laughs> things. I like matter. I like wine. I like <laughs> food. Uh, and I wanted to be reassured um, that it was legitimate to enjoy those things, to to live as fully as we are told to do uh, within this material world. And the source of uh, the legitimacy of loving being in this life is... Uh, God's, Jesus's uh, inhabitation of the material world in the incarnation. So that was what was behind this inquiry. And you say at the beginning of the book that you dodged the accounts for years. Why was that? And was there a particular thing that you thought, right, now is the time that I need to look into this? Was there something that kind of kick-started the whole process? Uh, I dodged them for two reasons. Um, one was I thought I knew these stories. Mm-hmm. So I had been to nativity plays as a child actor and as a tolerant parent for decades. And I thought I knew what the Christmas story mm. said. Um, which was wrong. Uh, And the second reason was that when I went to the Bible, I looked at the uh, opening of the nativity accounts in Matthew and in Luke, and they're really boring. They are genealogies, deeply off-putting. And I was just too tired to sit down and try and get my head around what this was really all about. I had suspicions growing suspicions over the years that uh, the nativity story wasn't the full story. So what changed? What made you think, right, now is the time? It was uh, the knowledge that I'd always nudged these stories to the edge of my attention. And I I wondered what I had been missing. And so there there came a time when these itches that I had um, couldn't be ignored anymore. And so I dived into it. Um, and typically my way of diving into something is to try and write a book about it. Um, so all, all my books, and this is true for most authors, I think, uh, are really written for me uh, <laughs> in, in an attempt to, to work out the answer to a problem. And this book, The Christmas Mystery, is a classic example of that. And how did you go about, I mean, who did you speak to? Where, where did you even start the process? I started with uh, reading the nativity accounts. Um, in Matthew and in Luke. Those are the only two nativity accounts, of course. Um, and then I went from there to the other two canonical Gospels, noting increasingly worriedly that there was no mention of uh, this 
birth story um, in those accounts. And then I went to the commentaries, um, and then I went to the history books, and then I went to lots of really patient experts. Um, uh, over the years, I've spent um, a long time for various academic reasons um, in the Holy Land, um, and so I spent a, a long time trudging around the sites which are associated with the nativ nativity story, talking to archaeologists and historians, gradually um, trying to fit together these extremely complex pieces mm -hmm. from these uh, alarmingly complicated stories. Well, we'll get to some of the things that you found in your research, but you kind of touched on this already. But why do the birth narratives matter? How important is the Christmas story, do you think? If the incarnation didn't happen, we can forget the whole of the Christmas story, the Christian, sto the Christian story. Mm -hmm. um, if we know something about what this story really meant, uh, we would be able to conclude more about what God's purposes uh, were in the Jesus mission. Um, rather than just fast-forwarding, as so many Protestants, particularly so many evangelicals, do, mm. straight to Easter and thinking we can uh, just understand the rescue mission without understanding um, the, the the way in which God in the Incarnation uh, chooses to, um, to stand alongside us, to be inside us, to be inside the whole material world. Um, so th that, was, that was what... I thought was the most important thing about about trying to puzzle all this out. So so pretty big deal, really. <laughs> it's a big deal. And you open your book, I love this, <laughs> with the line, uh, the church by and large does not celebrate Christmas. I mean, that is quite a statement to say that the church doesn't celebrate Christmas. W what did you mean by that? I mean by that, that we regard Christmas as the nativity play pastiche mm -hmm. with the oxen and the asses, which are nowhere to be found um, in the Gospels. Um, we sanitize um, the wise men. Uh, they were shamans. They were the people who would not uh, be comfortable in most modern evangelical churches. Mm. Um, we make it all too cosy. Um, Jesus was born uh, in circumstances of war and murder. Um, this is a dark place that um, he enters. Uh, guns are pointed, knives are drawn, blood flows. Uh, it's not little Jesus, meek and mild. This is a, a story about refugees and about uh, genocide um, and about crossing national borders and about um, obeying oppressive edicts from nasty occupying authorities. And unless we see that as the as the backdrop, um, we we fail to appreciate something really important about uh, about the nature of the Christmas story um, and about the fact that, when something ultimately good erupts into the world, it is uh, immediately confronted by something which is ultimately dark. Mm. So it, the story tells us something profound about uh, the forces which work in the cosmos, um, about 
uh, about the way in which uh, good chooses to work. It tells us about um, a, a new modus operandi of of God. Mm-hmm. So previously, um, the the direction of God's action uh, had been had been perceived as being from outside in. Um, the direction of that action changes in the incarnation. Um, the the healing which is which is started then um, occurs from from the inside out. Um, and if we appreciate that, we we feel differently about ourselves. We feel differently um, about uh, about the whole of the material world. Um, we f- should feel differently about um, the people who are all around us. Mm. Um, the Christmas story takes me uh, directly to that um, wonderful essay by, wonderful sermon by C.S. Lewis, um, The Weight of Glory, mm-hmm. um, in which he talks about there being uh, no mere mortals, um, about uh, everybody around us, the people who we are bored with, who we despise, um, being creatures of of, of infinite worth. Um, it's immortals that we joke with, he says, work with, marry, snub and exploit. Um, and so the incarnation um, is a, a, an invitation to, to take humans a great deal more seriously than we did before. Um, and as Lewis again points out in that sermon, um, it's only if we take the world and particularly humans as seriously as they should be taken because uh, God was occupying a human body of the same sort as the uh, the humans um, that we marry some other exploit. We, we have more, unless we take as serious as we should we can't have as much fun as we mm. should so it, he goes on it, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses um and the incarnation shows us i think that uh we are all of infinite uh potential we are all infinitely loved and the incarnation would have happened um if there had only been one person who uh, was uh, uh, needing uh, salvation, needing rescue. So, but it, te- it it tells me some really important things about the way in which I should orientate myself to the whole world and particularly to the humans in my world. But it also tells me something really important, which I usually forget about free will. Um, Protestants, I think. Uh, have lost such a lot by being scared of the figure of Mary mm. and you know, feeling that uh, to respect Mary is to sideline Jesus um, rather than by acknowledging that uh, the whole Jesus project turned on her saying yes when she need not have said yes. Uh, she could have said no. Mm. Uh, this was not uh, a, an act of rape. Um, and if she had said no, um, would 
redemption wouldn't have happened. Um, so that illustration of, of the, the vulnerability of the whole God project, the whole redemption project, um, is something which is both exhilarating and vertiginous to, mm. to, to, to think about. Um, and also, as I reflected on, on the figure of Mary, I, I was taken back all the time to the way in which Mary is prefigured in the Old Testament. I don't like the expression the Old Testament. It's very offensive to Jewish people. The, Jewish, the, the Hebrew Bible. Um, in, you know, we have Jesus as the first Adam. Paul's always talking about it. But if you have a first Adam, you also got to have a new Eve. Uh, and that's that's Mary. Mm. Um, so this inquiry and the reflection which it forced on me um, caused me to to shed some of my traditional suspicions of uh, of the figure of Mary and the way that she has been yeah. uh, viewed, and to be thankful to her for saying yes. Uh, and making the whole project of God welling up into this material world possible. Mm. That was a new perspective for me. Well, we'll hear a bit more about Mary and some of the other key characters in the Christmas stories in a bit. But um, I'd love to just talk to you about, uh, you sort of mentioned that you go to Jerusalem quite a lot. And there's there's an encounter in your book where you're talking to a Christian archaeologist in Jerusalem. And um, you asked him lots of interesting questions and had some interesting conversations. Um, and one of the questions you asked him, I really loved. You said, um, suppose someone produced incontrovertible evidence that showed that the resurrection accounts were actually fairy tales. How would it affect you? I'd like to ask you that question in a minute, but before, what what was his response to your question and what was your reaction to his answer? Well, it, it was a dodging by him of the question. Um, so it, he, he simply insisted that uh, the, the Christian mythos uh, was necessarily in the realm of, of, of story. Um, you see exactly the same things from uh, both dogmatic fundamental secularists mm -hmm. and dogmatic fundamentalist uh, believers. You see, you see people locked into their own paradigms uh, and una unable to to break out of it. So it, it would seem to me that um, unless a Christian is um, able to consider the possibility that um Christianity is a fairy story uh that their their faith is um a a pretty mean thing you know, if there's nothing that could be done to to displace it um that would seem to me to, to devalue the the currency of faith Paul when he talks about um the resurrection doesn't have that attitude at all and he's 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 quite clear if Jesus isn't risen from the dead then our faith is vain mm. um but you see exactly the same thing amongst uh, secular uh fundamentalists too um I, I've encountered it again and again in um, the, the research for the various books I've written um, you have people who are uh, unable to consider the possibility that the Christian claims might be true. And there is nothing uh, that can be done to convince anyone otherwise. So also, we need humility on on all sides and in all domains. Um, and 
if we are if we are faithful Christians, uh, we need to acknowledge the vulnerability of our <laughs> of our faith. We need to acknowledge that if the bones of Jesus are dug up tomorrow uh, in Palestine, uh, we will have been barking up the wrong tree for the last two thousand years. And uh, and I think that that living with the possibility of of being confounded, living with the uncertainties, um, makes our relationship with God um, a, a, a more real thing. Because those are the sorts of, of uncertainties which we live with when we're in real relationships with humans as well. Yeah. You know, we can't be sure that the people who we regard as, as most trustworthy um, are never going to betray us. Um, it, it's the, the faith exists in living with the possibility of that uncertainty. Mm. Yes, I, I am convinced that God is reliable and is is not going to let me down, and that these uh, historical pillars uh, of the faith are robust. Um, but I've got to acknowledge, uh, even as I rejoice in that certainty, um, that. Uh, it might be untrue, and and I think that gives a a, a piquancy and a, yeah. and a reality to the, the faith that I have that uh, it, it wouldn't have if our faith could be proved as a matter of mathematical certainty. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. So how would you respond then if you were shown sort of incontrovertible proof that either the resurrection narratives weren't true or I guess given what we're talking about, the Christmas narratives, what would your response be to, to them just not being true or being fairy tales? I'd eat and eat more and drink more and <laughs> uh, have, a, have a final time until <laughs> I was buried and started to rot. That's what I would do. Okay. Uh, happy happy time then um <laughs> there you know the the title of your book the christmas mystery sort of implies that there is a lot of mystery surrounding the christmas stories there's lots that we can't know but i guess on the flip side is there anything that we can know about the christmas stories jesus existed uh, almost all people all respectable historians agreed about that um, if he existed and was a human being, um, then he had to be born. Uh, if he was born, he had to be born to someone and somewhere. Uh, and that's all that we can be certain about um, in the in the Christmas story. Um, the only two accounts that we've got in the canonical Gospels uh, come from Matthew and uh, from uh, Luke. Those stories are very, very different. The, mm. the only, the only common points between them are that Mary and Joseph are betrothed, and that in Bethlehem, a son of unusual origin is born, and that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and that Mary was a virgin when uh, she conceived him, and was a virgin when he was born. And what are some of those key differences that we'll go into the differences um, in a later episode, the specific differences, but would you highlight what some of those 
big differences are between Matthew and Luke or apparent differences. So in Matthew, um, Mary and Joseph seem to be uh, residents of Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. Um, In Luke, Nazareth seems to be the family home. And so in Matthew, uh, because Mary and Joseph seem to be residents of Bethlehem, there's no pre-birth travel involved. And Matthew tells a story of uh, the rule of Archelaus, Herod's uh, son over Judea, to explain why the couple uh, leave Judea, where Bethlehem is, uh, and go to to Nazareth. Um, It's in Matthew um, that the that Herod tries to recruit wise men as spies and the plot fails. And um, we hear that horrible story about all the children in Bethlehem area, two years or uh, under dying. Um, There's none of that in Luke. Um, It's in Luke that we have uh, an inn in Matthew, the birthplace of Jesus, is a house. It's in Luke that we have the angel choirs and the shepherds. Um, In Luke, the general feel is much quieter uh, than in Matthew. Um, After Jesus is born in Bethlehem, he's brought to the Jerusalem temple in the prescribed way. Um, Simeon and Anna predict great things for him, and then the family goes quietly home to Galilee. Uh, Not so, of course, in Matthew, Um, because of this horrific killing of the children, of of which the Holy Family had been warned in a dream. um, They go to Egypt, uh, and they stay there until after the death of Herod. Um, They plan to return to Judea, but because Archelaus is ruling there, they uh, change their plan and divert up to Nazareth. So it's it's really hard to um, read those two accounts um, comfortably mm-hmm. side by side. Um, in, in the second century, um, there was an Assyrian Christian attempt, which was called the Diatessaron, to, to harmonise the New Testament Gospels. Um, the the Diatessaron itself doesn't exist anymore. It's known um, only by commentaries. But it's very interesting that that attempt to harmonise was very strenuously suppressed. Mm. Um, the, the Christians at that early time decided to live with the differences. It wasn't that they were stupid and couldn't see that there were differences yeah. between the Gospels. Um, but they decided that there was a there was a point in those differences being there. Um, they they believed in the inspiration of of scripture in a way that we really don't. Um, even in the evangelical world, um, it, it's interesting that the modern way of trying to express respect for scripture is to try to say, yeah, well, it, it's it's all seamlessly the same story mm. that's not the way the early church did it and um, they opted for for authenticity rather than ease they thought that the holy spirit was making a point by deciding to um encode these truths in this difficult way 
Uh, and they worked on those difficulties. And in working at those difficulties, rather than brushing it, uh, rather than brushing them under the carpet, um, they got some great riches. Well, we're going to look specifically at some of those differences between the two gospel accounts, but you sort of touched on this already, but do you think it matters that they are so, at least on the surface of it, overwhelmingly different? I think those differences, as I've just mentioned, mm. are, are work points for mm. us. Um, and the, the fact that they have been implanted there means that we are supposed to work at, uh, at what truths are implied by those differences. Um, but the whole business of of, uh, of these apparently bound or differences, it, I think is supposed to hint to us that there's something really weird going on in the mm. whole um, incarnation story. And if God explodes into the world, you don't expect uh, a, a, an easy story of the sort that could be uh, set down in a, a few lines from a, a competent journalist. You expect there to be uh, mysteries. You expect there to be tangles. You expect people to, um, to to scratch their heads and wonder if they've seen things right. Um, in, in looking at, at the other end of the story, at the, the resurrection accounts, um, there are, of course, very different uh, accounts of, of the empty tomb and the... Mm. The, the post-resurrection experiences. This is a subject which I've written another book about, a book called The, the Jesus Inquest. Um, and the overwhelming feeling when you read those accounts together is of, of honest people saying uh, there's something extraordinary going on here. We can't quite make sense of it mm. um, using the, the usual presumptions that we bring to to historical evidence but this is uh, this is how it seemed to us to be um i don't think it's quite like that yeah. um, in the in the the story of the of the incarnation but there's there's definitely a flavor of that um and i i think that those difficulties are, are meant to make us interrogate our presumptions about mm. about how how incarnation can happen and and, and what it means mm. because these are stories not just about what 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 incarnation looked like um but also about what incarnation meant so these are and this is so important to, to emphasize these are these are stories of of, of exposition Mm. Um, not merely uh, reportage, not merely historical description. And we can see that, see that very clearly, but particularly in the story that Matthew gives us. Mm. Well, I suppose that raises the question of how should we be approaching the gospel narratives? Because you mentioned there it's not just reportage. We shouldn't just be reading it at surface level. We should approach them with fear and trembling. Um, but we should also uh, approach them having tried to delete from our minds um, our memories of nativity plays. Mm -hmm. We should 
uh, we should approach them as we approach every Christian text and every human being and every human experience, um, expecting to be surprised, not expecting uh, to have our presumptions confirmed, which mm. is how most of us uh, approach most of our human experiences. Yeah. Most people go to church, don't they? I know I do. Um, wanting to be reassured yeah. uh, that we got it right. That's exactly the wrong way to, to go to church, isn't it? We should go to church uh, expecting to come out a, a different person mm. um, with uh, with our ideas reformed. Lewis, again, talks about God as the great iconoclast who is continually smashing up our mere ideas about mm. him. And he talks about um, uh, all reality being iconoclastic. And I think that's right. Um, and the the disconcerting feel with which we uh, leave our reading of the Christmas stories is, I think, a paradigm example of exactly that. We go into them thinking we understand what this is about. Yeah. We come out of them saying, goodness, um, I've no idea what that is about, but I know that it's wonderful, and I know that it's uh, the start of of a, of a flowering of uh, of divinity from mm. from underneath the earth, from within the earth, and from within me, which is supposed to transform me in a in a way which is different from the sort of transformation that comes from the beaming into us of of theological propositions yeah. or, or, or epiphanies which appear out, outside us. Well, we're going to dive into um, Matthew and Luke in greater detail in the next episode. But just as we sort of come to the end of this episode, why do you think Mark and John don't mention the birth narratives if it is such an important part of the Christian story? I, I think that they have different agendas. Mm -hmm. So John is a, a writer who does have a... A, a story about the start of Jesus. It's just that he locates that start um, before time itself begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the pre-existing God, and the Word was God. Um, and and he presumably thinks that um, to mention the earthly. Uh, eruption of of Jesus uh, into Palestine would would dilute the dramatic force uh, mm -hmm. of of that story. Um, Mark is very keen to emphasise to us um, how dramatic it was when the adult Jesus um, burst onto the historical scene, and he moves quickly and artlessly from the beginning of Jesus's ministry to, to Jesus's death. So uh, I don't think it's, I don't think it's heretical, far from it to, to say, as I expect many evangelicals would say, that um, the gospel writers had an agenda. They plainly mm -hmm. do. Um, you know, Matthew's agenda is to show us that, um, 
Jesus is prefigured in the Hebrew scriptures. He constantly cites those scriptures um, to make points about um, almost everything that he states about Jesus's life. Um, Luke sets out, he tells us to write an orderly account of the events of Jesus's life. It's the nearest thing to a biography uh, that uh, we have. Um, but, but he too has an agenda other than biography. Mm -hmm. he, he wants to show us that the life and death of Jesus are the result of, of a divine plan. Mm. And the birth story that he tells um, fits well with that agenda. Um, so different agendas. That's why I think Mark and John don't specifically mention the, the earthly birth of Jesus. Uh, there are plenty of opportunities for them to mention the earthly birth of Jesus if they wanted to. Um, and it's caused problems for some people that they don't. Mm. Um, so it, it, in Mark 6, for example, the crowd asks, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and uh, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Um, and that would be an obvious place um, for someone speaking uh, Jesus's part to say, well, um, act actually, uh, he's the son of God. Um, actually, uh, he's uh, not Joseph's son, um, as you might think he is, uh, but uh, he has a, a divine origin and um, he was born in Bethlehem. Um, you know, likewise in John, you know, Philip says to Nathaniel, um, we found him about to Moses and the law and also the prophets, right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Mm. Q, you'd have thought for saying, well, he's not out of Nazareth at all, actually. He's out of Bethlehem. Yeah. Um, and, and he's not the son of Joseph, as as uh, is uh, suggested in that in that passage. But no, there's no mention of it. Why? I think the only explanation can be that, again, agenda. Mm. But feels that he has told a, given a sufficient, majestic account yeah. of of Jesus's origins before time, and does doesn't want to have a distraction from that story. Well, Charles, I feel like we're just sort of scratching the surface of a massive topic. And in the next episode, we're going to go further into some of those differences in Matthew and Luke, differences in inverted commas, potentially, um, and, and look at some of the things around the virgin birth and things like that. But that's all we've got time for today. So thank you so much, Charles. Very much enjoyed our conversation, Ruth. Look forward to continuing it. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic with me, Ruth Jackson. I was talking there with Charles Foster, author of The Christmas Mystery, and you can hear part two of our conversation next week. As always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. Before we go, just a reminder about our brand new online apologetics course, Science, Faith and the Evidence for God with John Lennox. It includes nearly four hours of video material with John Lennox, Emeritus Professor of Mathematics and Philosophy of Science at Oxford University. The course is led by Justin Briley of Premier Unbelievable and it includes questions and assignments to help ground your learning. To celebrate the launch of this course, we're extending a 30% discount until the new year. The offer ends on Wednesday the 4th of January, so enrol now at premierunbelievable.com slash Lennox and learn how to make sense of science, faith, and the evidence for God. 
Thank you for listening and see you next time when we'll carry on our conversation with Charles Foster about Christmas. Merry Christmas. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.